Perfect, perfect. Well, we're glad you're here. Happy Father's Day. Um, I'm going to give you a Father's Day sermon that's going to change your life. It's eight words. Eight words that will change your life. And that's it. And then we're done and we'll get on out of here and everybody can go wherever. No. Eight words. Everyone says, on Mother's Day, Trump, you don't preach a Mother's Day sermon. On, on Father's Day, you don't preach a Father's Day sermon. I was like, I, I know. We're just going to te- keep going through the word. But today, I'm going to give it to you. It's eight words. Here, And if you think about these eight words and really, dads, what they mean. I'm not going to explain them. But the, the nuances that are in them, they will revolutionize your life and your family and your marriage. You ready? First is this. Love Jesus. Kiss your wife. Hug your kids. If you use those words, you unpack what each of those mean, it will change your life, right? It will change your family. Love Jesus, kiss your wife, hug your kids. That's it. Not a big message about how bad you are and how you need to become better men. If you live those eight words and what they really truly mean, it will change your marriage, it will change your family. It will change who you are at work, out of work, wherever you are. Those things will dynamically change your life. It begins with saying, Jesus, I love you. It will change everything. That being said, we are moving through the book of Acts. So we're not stopping this train. We are week 32 in. Carson picked up week 31, and I'm picking up the tail end of what he preached last week. So I'm going to give you a brief little recap of where we've been, because we do have a bunch of people that are here that haven't been with us for 32 weeks. And so I'm not going to kind of go all the way back. I'm just going to go back to chapter 13, because chapter 13, things have changed a little bit in the book of Acts. We have the first missionary movement that begins. So the first mission journey ever taken takes place in Acts chapter 13 as a compelling move by the Holy Spirit to take the followers of Christ, which in this case is Paul and Barnabas and a guy by the name of John Mark, who was Barnabas's cousin, to go out into the world to take the gospel of Jesus Christ as the first missionaries. Now, there were a lot of people in Scripture that God sent, but this is the first designated sending mission movement. In fact, our middle school kids here out of Austin, you are a direct result of what we're going to see in this chapter. That that first mission movement where Jesus himself, the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 8, commands people to go and tell of the things that he has done. To go and baptize those in the name of Jesus Christ, teaching them everything that I've commanded you, even and I'll be with you even to the very end of the age. Acts chapter 1, it's echoed through that same promise. You, church, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. We will be sent by God, and we've explored these concepts into the world. Well, that mission movement began in chapter 13. The Holy Spirit, along and empowering through the church, sent these individuals out to the world. Now, Paul and Barnabas got on a boat in a town called Seleucia, which is right on the coast there of the Mediterranean Sea, and they sailed for the island of Cyprus. The first uh, missionary journey took them, first stop, to the island of Cyprus. And they got out on the easternmost side of that island, and they walked across the whole island, 90 miles. And everywhere they went, they were proclaiming the word of God. The first part of Acts 13 talks about how they landed there. And as they were going through the island, making their way to the far west side, right, they were proclaiming and teaching about God's word. And the ruler of the whole island, right, this guy named Sergius Paulus, He was the ruler of the whole island, and he had heard that they were preaching the word of God, and he wanted to hear what they had to say. So he sent for Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, and they come, and they meet the ruler of the island, and he says, tell me about this God that you're proclaiming. Well, the first part of chapter 13, we see this unfolding, and there's this guy that sort of rears his head up. Uh, He goes by the name Bar-Jesus, which is just a kind of a name that ironically means son of Jesus, but has nothing to do with Jesus himself. And he was a magician, a sorcerer. 
he uh, was a guy that predicted and told people's future. And he didn't want the ruler of the island to understand the gospel or come in contact with God because he was evil in all of his sort of ways. And so Paul, and he kind of got in the way and tried to disrupt the message. And Paul says, why are you trying to disrupt God's word? Why are you trying to get in the way? You are so evil. And this guy goes blind. This mist covers his eyes and he goes blind. And, and Paul kind of shares the gospel anyway, and the leader sees this incredible thing and how all this has transpired, and he hears the word of God, and he accepts Christ as his Savior, and the whole island is sort of turned upside down. And that's the first missionary movement, this incredible thing that happens, and we spent a few weeks ago before Church in the Park all of that time talking about the things that that meant and the opposition that we'll see when we proclaim the gospel. Well, last week, as Carson picked up, they leave that island, making their second stop, and they sail over to this mainland area, right? And they get out, and they walk 100 miles over the mountains to a town called Antioch. Now, it's not the same Antioch that we've talked about a few weeks ago that they were sent out from. This is the city in Antioch. It's uh, basically an outpost in the big region of Galatia. And Galatia was a Roman area, it was a Roman, it was colonized by the Romans, and this city right here, this Antioch city, was actually the military hub and outpost for the entire southern region of the Roman army. It was a big city, it was a huge deal. So they sailed from the island, they went over the mountains, you know, all the way, 100 miles inland by foot, and they came to this town, and as Carson mentioned last week, they went into the temple, and they began to preach the gospel. This was Jesus' ministry 101. When he would show up in a town, he would go to the temple because he would find people gathered there that were discussing God's word, and he would intercede with the kingdom of God and things like that. Well, the church did the same thing. So the missionaries go to the temple, and they find all these Jewish people, not just Jews from Jerusalem, but other people in the area that had given their life to Yahweh, to God, and were there worshiping. And as they were there, the men stood up, and they read from the law, and they read from the prophets. So they'd stand up in an assembly just like this, And they would read from the law, which was the first five books of the New Old Testament. We call the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. So five of them, right? Give or take. So they'd stand up and they'd read from it. And then they'd read from the prophets, right? The uh, minor prophets, the major prophets, and they'd just read God's word. Because not everybody had access. You didn't get a Bible. They were on scrolls. And not very many people could read. And so the rabbis and the leaders would stand up and they would read from these scrolls. And that was your time where you got to hear God's word. I mean, imagine a time in your life where you didn't have access to a Bible. The only time you got to encounter God's word was when you showed up here, right? There was a hunger for it. And at the temple, they would hear God's word read together. Not everyone got it, so they would read it. It was a really important time. And so what Paul does, he waits for the reading to end. And one of the leaders stands up and he says... Does anybody have any encouraging words for the people, right? So do you have anything to say about what we've just heard? And Paul stands up and he motions with his hands, right? Tells everybody basically to calm down. It's going to be a little bit. I've got something to say. Sits them down and he begins from that moment, and Carson started this last week, and he begins to talk about the redemptive movement of God, starting with the calling of people into, out of, from Abraham into Egypt with the monarchies and all these incredible things. And he takes them all the way to the person of Jesus Christ. So he takes the law that they read about Moses and the prophets, and he begins with that explanation, and he walks them all the way through redemptive history and gets them to the person of Jesus Christ. So what Paul does is basically say, all those words that you just heard, let me explain what they're pointing to. So he said, all the law that we talked about, all the prophets, all these things, they are pointing to something amazing, and let me tell you what that is. 
And Carson took us all the way up to the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel begin movement there. And I'm going to finish the rest of that out today because in the rest of this message, what we're going to see is that we're going to see some common themes that we've explored over the past 30 weeks, but all tied together in one place. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to take that movement. Now, this is like the fourth or the, actually the third sermon we've seen Paul preach. And this is the one that we have in its entirety, the length of it. And he's going to take all these movements and he's going to tie them together. And I'm going to show you the, the, sort of the three most sort of important pieces of the themes that we've seen thus far. And we're going to see how Paul uses them to uh, proclaim the gospel to this gathered group of temple people, if you will, Jewish people. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to open God's word together in Acts chapter 13. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that unites hearts and minds and that we can come here from all walks of life. Father, we can come in here from uh, different towns, different places, different backgrounds, different stories, different uh, groups, fathers, different ethnicities. We can gather in this place united by Jesus Christ alone. That God, there is no other uniting factor in this world aside from Christ. God, you are the uniter of hearts spiritually. Father, we are knit together because of our common love for Christ. Well, this morning as we open your word, we are very much reminded, um, as we'll talk about a little later, that sin is rotten and very prevalent in our world. Lord, we caught a glimpse of that another way this week as we watched the devastation that has kind of rattled through our lives as we watch what unfolds in Charleston, South Carolina, and how race and sin and uh, rottenness, Father, racism has still so penetrated the hearts of people in our country, Father, and all over the world, actually, that it divides and that God's sin is rampant. And we grieve this morning with our brothers and sisters around uh, the country and around the world, but especially with our brothers and sisters in South Carolina, Father, that are uh, dealing with such great and devastating loss, loss that most of us will never understand. Father, loss of, that's more than just of, of a human life, but of, of dignity and safety, Father, and things that most of us won't have any understanding of. And Lord, we confess that we are guilty so often of the rottenness that sin brings into our hearts. So Father, as we explore these themes that Paul's mentioning this morning, God, may we be reminded that this isn't problems that took place 2,000 years ago, Father. Sin and decay and death are part of all of us. And that God, you are the only one that can overcome them. Take a moment in your own heart and just pray that God would teach you something this morning. Even if these are things that you've heard me talk about before or other people talk about before, just pray. Pray that God would teach you something. Just whisper that in your heart this morning. And pray for someone beside you or around you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. Pray that God would move in their hearts. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We do this each week. I encourage you to pray for other people. This, this time is not just about you. Pray that God would move in the people around you. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we read your word, as we open your word, as we study your word. Father, we pray that you would be exalted and lifted up. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So chapter 13, verse 26, we are picking up right in mid-thought, in mid-sentence of Paul's sermon to those that are gathered in the temple. So he kind of wraps up where Carson wrapped up last week in verse 25. He says, John was uh, completing his work. He says, who do you think I am? Talking about John the Baptist. I am no one. 
um, but he who is coming after me, he's the one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. So he's talking about Jesus. John the Baptist is preparing the way, and that's sort of where we left off. So we're going to pick up in verse 26. Paul's still talking, and he says, Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, and today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And so we sta- it's stated, stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose, in his own generation he fell asleep. He was buried in his father's, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want, to, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that, would ne- that you would never believe, even if someone told you. All right, wraps up his sermon there. Let me just give you a quick outlook, and then we're going to kind of move down to the bottom part of that. So what he does, he gives this entire picture of the redemptive movement of God through history. And Carson covered the first part of it, and he talks about the monarchs and the king, and he gets us to John the Baptist, and then he presents the person of Jesus Christ and begins this exploration of the gospel. And he says, now listen, I want to tell you a little bit more about this Jesus. Because all the law that you read and all the prophets that we just read together, they are pointing to this person. They are all pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And the things that we have heard are actually the fulfillment of Scripture. And he goes through several Old Testament passages, several Psalms, some from Isaiah. And he shows how this foretold Jesus was kind of uh, prophesied about in the Old Testament. He says all that we're reading is pointing to Jesus. This gospel message is for us. Right? And he said, but I want to make one really important distinction for you about Jesus and about God's redemptive plan. And he says, listen. And he uses the Psalms and he begins to talk about David. And we learned about the monarchs a little bit last week. But the idea was this. David was the single greatest king in all of Israel's history. He was the one that was after God's own heart. He was the one that Israel looked to as being someone that God has sent. And they had hoped and believed that the Messiah would come from his line David's line, and he would restore Israel to a political power. Well, we know that Jesus did come from the line of David, but instead of restoring Israel as a political power, he died for the sins of humanity. That He was literally king, uh, prince of peace, if you will, as opposed to king of a, of, a, of a nation. And he says, I want you to understand one difference, major difference between David, the greatest of all rulers, and this Jesus that all of Scripture talks about. Because Jesus was sent for us. He is the Messiah. And the Jews, while they pursued trying to reject his claims, they actually fulfilled Scripture in doing so, right? So when trying to reject the claims of Jesus, they fulfilled everything that Scripture was written about. But there's one major difference I want you to know. David, right, when he died, he goes, when David died, right, 
His body was put into the ground. He fell asleep, and he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. So David died. He was a human being, lived on this earth, was a great king, man after God's own heart, and he died, and his body decayed. Sounds kind of gross, but it's just physiology. When you die, your body decays. These are organic bodies that we've been given. They have organic material. When we die, they begin to decay. Even the, resurre- or even the, the people that were raised from the dead in Scripture, right? Lazarus, uh, the centurion's daughter, even the person that, that Peter was a part of raising from the dead that we saw several weeks ago. Those people that were raised from the dead eventually died again, right? They didn't live forever. They died again and their bodies decayed. And what, what Paul's doing is he's saying that the picture of the perfection that we see in a person in Scripture is David. He is the one that we look to. And David died after God's purpose was done and his body decayed, rotten. Now the point here is this. Sin, and the reason, well let me put it this way. Sin is rotten, right? We are sinful, and therefore we are rotten. The reason that bodies decay, the reason that people die, the reason that we experience death and destruction is because sin runs rampant through who we are. It's the message of Scripture. We are deeply sinful to the very core. And death and decay are a part of the destruction that comes through sin. From Genesis onward, sin is the reason for death and decay. What Paul is doing is he's setting up a principle that says we can't escape the reality of sin and death. Sin and death are deeply a part of our reality as human beings. Even King David experienced death and decay and his body died. Now, we don't like to talk about this. And I've mentioned sin and we've talked about sin so many times. I won't do it all again. But we don't like to talk about this because we don't like to think that we're all sinful. We don't like a preacher to stand up here and say, I, uh, you are sinful, I am sinful, we deserve God's wrath because of our dis- kind of disgusting, sinful, rotten state. We don't like that. In fact, our culture leans opposite. We want to go to churches that scratch our backs, tell us that we are all inherently good, and if we just tap into the good inside each one of us, then we can be all that we were created to be, right? Lovely, but it's a complete lie. The truth is, when you really read Scripture, Not only are we dying and dead in our sin, but the Bible tells us that we are enemies of God. So in our sinful state, we are enemies of God and we are destined for death and decay. This is the picture we see in culture. Open your eyes. Most of us have such a small view of the world that we see what happens in Oklahoma City. But if you go global with your eyes and you realize what is happening around the world, genocide and death and violence and starvation and poverty and hurt, right? trafficking, all these horrible things, they are a response and a reason because sin and death is so prevalent in culture. And so what we want to do is we want to go to churches not to be reminded of that truth, but to be distracted from that truth so that we don't have to feel guilty and feel bad. The truth is, I don't care how you feel. We're dying, dead in our sin, and we are rotten to the core. Not a message everybody likes to hear, but it's one that Paul's setting up. Even King David died. And David wasn't, he was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't perfect. Remember his escapades with Bathsheba? He had someone murdered, had an affair, tried to cover it all up. David was not a picture of perfection. Sin and death deeply creeped into David's life. 
we have to understand sin because outside of understanding the doctrine of sin, we can't understand the doctrine of grace. We can't understand the gospel. We can't understand the resurrection or the beauty of the true gospel that we're going to talk about this morning. So I lay that out there to say this. We have to understand it. You can argue with me all you want. doesn't change a thing. You are sinful. Sin is rotten. We are rotten to the very core, period. But God doesn't let the story in there. That's what's so amazing about the gospel, is that if that were the end of the story, then sure, that's devastating and awful and terrible. But what we believe is that there is a redemptive plan that goes beyond that. And listen to what Paul says. So Paul says, David's body saw decay. Gross, he died, it decayed. It is what it is. Verse 37, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not decay. So he says, but this one that I've been telling you about, this one that all of Scripture and all the law points to, the person of Jesus Christ, God raised him from the dead, and he did not decay. So of all the resurrection appearances that we see in Scripture, all the, the people being raised from the dead that we see in Scripture, Jesus is the only one that never died again, that he is alive. And what Paul is saying is he's saying the resurrection is victory over death. That is the single greatest event in all of human history. Through the cross of Christ, we saw our sins died for. But through the resurrection, we saw the power of God demonstrated that God overcomes death with victory, death with life. That Jesus Christ conquered death once and for all. That if we trust and believe in him, we are delivered out of our state of rottenness because Jesus has overcome that. This is basic gospel truth. And this is what Paul's trying to tell these folks, rotten to the core. Every single one of us, myself included, even David, deeply rotten in sin and death, has so permeated him that his body is gone. But God raised Jesus, the one that we've been talking about, the one that the law talks about, the one the prophets talk about, and he is alive. The thing that separates Christianity from every other world religion is that our God is alive, right? He's not buried somewhere with another prophet, that Jesus has been resurrected and is alive. But that's not even really what's the most amazing part about all this, which is incredible. Listen to what else Paul says. He finishes that thought up by saying this, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, right, the resurrection of Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins that is proclaimed to you. So this is the beauty of the resurrection. Not that, that God just overcomes our rottenness and our sin, and that through Jesus Christ we have victory over death, that we are no longer God's enemies, but he has exchanged our disastrous lives for his glorious life, right? That he has taken our due penalty, right? Substituted us for his glory. Not just that, but that in that we have forgiveness of our sin. Now we're okay with the idea that God died for our sins, that he took them away, right? We get that, that he makes our, our kind of scarlet or our red lives white as snow. But what we really don't wrestle with or really understand is that in that resurrection moment, where God exchanges his glory for our sinfulness, he forgives our sins. He doesn't just move them to the side. He covers them, blankets them, and then forgives them. All that garbage that you've done and will do and are currently engaged in that you won't forgive yourself of at all, that when we say yes to the resurrected Christ, the God of the universe forgives those at the core. Most of our struggles as followers of Christ, as Christians, is because we won't forgive ourselves for what God has already forgiven us of. So we hold on to it, we wrestle with it, and we allow it to haunt our heart. The enemy keeps bringing it up, pushing it over and over again. And God is saying that when you said yes to Jesus, the power of the resurrection didn't just free you from rottenness through Jesus Christ. 
but it redeemed you and made you new from all that other garbage, that you are forgiven. Now, it's hard for us to grasp that because we can't forgive each other. I mean, we're the biggest grudge holders ever, right? And Christians are the worst, the worst, judgmental, hypocritical. We are all those things. And we talk about not holding grudges, but we tuck those things away. I mean, our marriages are perfect examples of that, right? We say, we forget, we tuck things away, we hide, we bring them out at just the right time. Because the truth is, we don't really forgive. We wish we could. Sometimes we forget out of sight, out of mind. But we wrestle with forgiveness, true forgiveness. If any of you have ever had a broken heart, a deeply broken heart from a parent, from a sibling, from someone, been left, been whatever, you know that deep hurt and how hard it is to forgive. Well, imagine that God takes all that garbage in your life, all the ways that you have betrayed him and run from him, all the things that he has called you to do and you have ignored, all the things that you've shouted in your in your back of your mind that no one else can hear, all the things that go on in your life that you would shudder if anybody else even found that out that you fought them. God says, I forgive you. This is the resurrection. It's part of that incredible power. That in our sin and rottenness to the death and decay at the very core of who we are, God through Jesus Christ made him alive, raised him from the dead, and gives us that forgiveness. And Jesus takes all of our garbage. And Paul says, all of that, temple people, Sabbath gatherers, is for you. But listen to what he says. This will be the last thing I want to say. Listen to what he says. He goes, I want you to understand why this is so beautiful. And this is the picture of the true gospel that we've talked about for so many weeks. He says, listen, verse, uh, let's do verse 39. Through him, everyone who believes, right, through the resurrected Christ, you have forgiveness. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything that you could not be justified from, from the law of Moses. So imagine a group of gathered religious leaders, and they believe the only way to get God's favor is to perfectly keep the law of Moses. And there were so many pieces. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. The law was huge at this point in time, and it was impossible to keep. And the only way you could please God was by living it perfectly, right, which no one could do. So you attempted to live right so that God would give you favor, but no one could live right, so you were in a constant cycle of desperation and hopelessness. And what Paul says is he says what Jesus did was he justified, which means saved. He saved everyone, right, that believes in him from what the law of Moses couldn't do. So when you couldn't be justified by being perfect, Jesus saved you. Now, the reason this is the beauty of the true gospel is because we run around all the time as people that say, yes, saved by grace of Jesus alone, but we perform and try and live in a way that makes God want to, tries to show God that we're trying and that we want to earn or merit God's love and a favor, right? So we don't act that way, but we've done a bunch of wrong things. We think we probably need to get back to church now. Right, Because that way God knows I'm giving it my effort. We feel like that the solution to our spiritual struggles is somehow doing a few more religious things. Or maybe I have to start tithing again or whatever to try and show God that I'm giving an effort. We try and perform. It's the same way that the, that the early kind of uh, uh, Israelites had to perform for God to live morally. And they could not do it. You cannot earn your way to any kind of affection from God. God is not going to look at you and say, hey, you know what? You're giving it a college try, man. Great effort. You know what? We'll call it. We'll call it good. It's even, right? Not going to happen. No amount of work you do will ever get you any closer, any closer. Not one millimeter, not one spiritual, however you measure that distance, not one little bit will ever get you any closer to who God is. 
it is impossible. God in his perfect, holy, amazing glory, and you in your sinful, rotten state are as far apart as anything could ever be. But the beauty of the gospel, the true gospel, is that God, right, through what the law couldn't do, sent his son Jesus to die for our sin and raise him from the dead, giving us victory over death, forgiveness of sins, and he justified us. That word justified means he took the action, he did the work, and he saved you. You didn't do it. You didn't earn it, you didn't work for it, you didn't make a good effort for it. God did what you could not do for yourself, and he saved you. That's the gospel. Now, I, I preached in week 25 about uh, the true gospel, right? And, uh, and I, what I talked about that week was that a lot of us have misunderstood that term. We use the term gospel in exchange for a lot of things, right? We say, hey, I'm sharing the gospel, but really what you're doing is just sharing your testimony. Remember, we talked about all that. At the core of the true gospel is one central figure, and that's the central figure of Jesus Christ. Sadly, many of our churches, many of our, our, even our own, even ourselves, we have exchanged the true gospel for our version of the gospel that is centered around ourselves, our stories, our testimonies, our ideas, and we do it for one reason, because we don't want to offend the world. Because the true gospel is you are rotten to the core, you are an enemy of God, and you deserve God's wrath which is offensive, right? Because nobody wants to tell somebody else that. But you remember, you're not telling them that's what the Bible says. So that's the first part of the gospel. The second part is, in that state, you are dead, period. So God did what you could not do for yourself, right? Through Jesus Christ, who he resurrected, he forgives your sins, and if you believe in him, all that God has done and you have done nothing. The, the judge became your advocate, died in your place. We shy away from that gospel message because culture has taught us that Christianity is offensive and that we have to play the cultural game to make sure that we don't offend. So we say, hey, I don't know if this is for you, but this is what God has done in me, and our gospel message becomes centralized to who I am. Not a terrible thing, but the true gospel is not about you at all. You did nothing. Zero. You were just dead. God reached in and rescued and redeemed you through the gift of faith. You made no great movement on your own to finally say, you know, God, I've tried everything else. I'm going to give you a world. No, God rescued you, Scripture says. He took the action and the movement. You did nothing. The central figure in the gospel story is Jesus, period. It's not you. So we get up and we share and we tell our stories and we, we're built on a church culture of entertainment and attendance gathering. And so we preach a gospel quote that is centered around entertainment stories and things and not around the person of Jesus Christ because we don't want you to run off after your first visit because to hear who you really are is offensive because we don't like it but it's true and when you finally come to grips with the core of our own rottenness and the fact that God's extravagant amazing incredible love redeems us from that way of life by nothing that we did on our own, we see the gospel at play, the beauty of the gospel. What happens next week is everybody freaks out. And they go, you got to come back because this is nutso. And we're going to see how this plays out in terms of life change. Now, there's no greater picture of this message today than what we do when we celebrate communion. I mean, this is the picture of the gospel. 
When we celebrate communion, that's exactly what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves in no manner, in no form, and in no way. That night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night that he would be handed over, the very night that all the people in his life would desert and run from him, he gathered, and after washing the disciples' feet and telling them that their lives would be different, he gathered with them, and he took a loaf of bread, and he gave thanks for it, and he blessed it, and he looked at everybody and said, this bread is my body, and it is broken for you. In the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. That when you take of this bread and you drink of this cup, you are proclaiming my death until I come again. See, the picture of this table is one of the beauty of the gospel. We could not do this. We could not take Christ's life. He laid it down for us. No effort of our own, no amount of work to get us there. That in your infinite state of death and decay and rottenness, God sent his son to give us life. That if we believe in him, that God raised him from the dead, we not only have the promise of freedom and salvation and justification, but the forgiveness of sin. The deep part of our souls that are steeped in rottenness, God says, not only are you saved, but I forgive you. This is the picture of the gospel.